ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the seventh season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution produced with our partners at WSB Radio. This season, Judgment Call. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJCBreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at ReporterJCB. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. The truth of the matter is that police officers in the U.S. are often first responders to mental health crises and they need specialized training and they need to understand how to interact effectively with the mentally ill. He started going back to the doctor, I think, around January of 2015. And um, that's when we sat down and I said, I think that you need medication because you're either super depressed and you won't get out of the bed or some weeks you're super manic and you won't go to sleep and um, we cried about it prayed about it and we said that okay this is the best decision just a roller coaster just a complete roller coaster you're right what's going to happen next this is our final episode before chip olson's murder trial we've told you about the two principal characters in this case anthony hill and chip olson we've described what happened on march 9th 2015 We've told you what led former District Attorney Robert James to take the unusual step to formally charge a police officer. And we've taken you down the long road to where we are today. Now we want to tell you about who gets to decide Chip Olson's fate. It's probably the most important part of a trial. I mean, if you don't, it's also the hardest because it's unscripted. Welcome back. I'm Bill Rankin. I'm Christian Boone. We're reporters with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, bringing you the latest season of Breakdown in partnership with WSB Radio. This is Episode 5 of Season 7, Judgment Call. You just heard from Bob Rubin, a criminal defense attorney who's been involved in some of DeKalb County's most sensational trials. He knows as well as anyone how jury selection can make or break a case. And he says this trial could turn conventional wisdom on its head. So in a case like this where a defense lawyer is representing a police officer, the, the roles are kind of reversed in jury selection and throughout the trial. Um, normally, defense lawyers are used to picking holes in police officers' stories, in attacking their credibility. Here, you're defending a police officer and defending his actions. And so the type of jurors you look for in a case like this may be the opposite of the type of jurors you look for in a typical criminal case where you're, you want people on the jury who are pro-police. Um, 
normally that's 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 a death sentence for your client because if you're pro police, you're pro prosecution. Um, but that's different in this kind of case. In high profile cases, it's not unusual for lawyers on both sides to hold mock jury trials. They're sort of a legal focus group. Trial teams bring in members of the public to act as jurors. They hear both the prosecution and defense sides. Then they deliberate while the lawyers listen to them watching through one-way mirrors. Lawyers use them to identify the strengths and weaknesses of their cases. It's as close as you could get to witnessing a jury deliberate. And Bill, you got the rare opportunity to be a fly on the wall. What was it like? It was something else. I got to hear it and you will too. Over the Christmas holidays, I went to an office building where 24 people heard the case and were divided into two groups to deliberate. Chip Olson was there. His lawyers were there. The whole defense team was there. And I sat there with them, under the condition that I not ask Olson any questions during the proceedings. Of course, I would have wanted to do that, absolutely. But I also didn't want to miss out on this opportunity. That's because the mock jurors came back with a lot of questions and some strong opinions. It was a pretty diverse group. There were about twice as many blacks as whites. Nearly half were college graduates. There was a school bus driver, a landscaper, a realtor, a security officer, and a personal trainer. Overseeing it all was jury consultant Denise Delarue, who you've heard from in previous seasons of Breakdown. Delarue has worked for many high-profile defendants, Olympic Park bomber Eric Robert Rudolph, NFL star Ray Lewis, Unabomber Ted Gazinski, and most recently, Atlanta lawyer Tex McIver, whose case was the subject of Breakdown's Season 5. Here's Della Rue calling the group to order. So as we're going through this day, what we really want to know are your honest thoughts, feelings, opinions, questions. Nobody is hoping you think one way or the other. Nobody's hoping you want one side or the other to win. What we want to know is what you really think and feel, okay? That's all that we care about. Delarue then read a brief summary of the case. The mock jurors had yet to hear both the prosecution and defense sides. Yet, right off the bat, they began asking questions that go right to the heart of the matter. Did he also have a lesser uh, lethal weapon? Okay. Taser, maybe right. something to use. How long have the officer been on the force? Okay, how long have the officer been on the force? And had he been involved in any other uh, incidents, shooting, firing his firearm? Is there a dramatic size difference between the one that was shot and the police officer? Did the naked man make any verbal threats beforehand? You said uh, Anthony Hill spread his arms when he, was, when he slowed down. Like, was it, were his fists closed? Like, was he concealed? Like, was there a way for him to conceal something? What race was the officer and the um, person who got shot? Okay, what race was the officer and the person who got shot? I'm going to go ahead and answer that uh, because I realize it didn't contain. The officer is Caucasian. The man who was shot is African-American. When that woman, an African-American, heard the answer, she gave an, of course, kind of nod. And she has data on her side. Dr. Philip Stinson from Bowling Green says of the 76 officers tried for murder or manslaughter since 2005, nearly two-thirds of the victims were African-American. The majority of the officers were white. Okay, back to the mock jury. After Delarue's initial walkthrough of the case, defense attorney Don Samuel enters the room and lays out the prosecution's case. On the afternoon of March 9th, residents of the Heights at Shambly Apartments called the police for help with one of their residents. Anthony Hill was acting strangely, 
and they were concerned about him. Frankly, they thought he was on drugs. Although he was acting strangely, at no time was he threatening anyone. He wasn't being violent. He wasn't destroying property. They thought he needed help, and so they called the police. Samuel played the 911 calls and showed jurors a map of the apartment complex. He then makes arguments you've heard before and will no doubt hear again. You will hear from the defense, after I'm done, about something called excited delirium, medical term. There's no evidence of that, only guesswork, only speculation. He was completely naked. This is not a case where the officer can say he thought the subject was reaching for a gun or a knife or something else. Anthony Hill had nowhere to hide anything. I know this can't be easy for Samuel. He's a defense attorney through and through. But he closes with this, with a flourish against his own client. Chip Olson shot Anthony Hill without justification. The defense says if someone runs at an officer and doesn't stop running, that officer can shoot to kill him and in fact kill him. But that is not the law. What if Mr. Hill was deaf? What if he's running to the officer for help? Shooting and killing an unarmed naked man who has hurt no one, who was not hurting anyone, and would not hurt anyone, is not self-defense. It is murder. Samuel left the room as a prosecutor. He returned in the more familiar role of a defense attorney. As Chip Olson arrived at the apartment complex, he had no information at that time that Mr. Hill was a veteran, or that he was suffering from PTSD, or that he had any mental illness whatsoever, bipolar or otherwise. It was just as reasonable based on the information that he had for him to believe that there was an intruder at the apartment complex, that he was on drugs, and that he was dangerous. Chip Olson had no intention when he arrived at the apartment complex to injure the person or to assault him. He didn't know him, never prior, no prior encounter with him. But again, the important point is that Chip Olson reacted. If you have any doubt about Chip Olson's intent, or if you have any doubt that he acted in self-defense, your duty is to resolve that doubt in his favor and return a verdict of not guilty. Samuel spent a lot more time presenting the defense's case than the prosecution's. No surprise there, right? Curiously, one thing he didn't tell the mock jury was about Officer Lynn Anderson's highly damaging testimony. That's Olson's false claim that Anthony Hill had pounded him before he pulled the trigger. Even leaving that out, the jurors seemed to be on the prosecution's side. This little three-second sprint, he must be the bionic or the newest uh, Avenger or somebody. That was a nice distance between that end of that parking lot and where that break is. Um, so some things just aren't really clear <clears throat> about whether that, that phaser would have worked. Because if he slowed down, arms to the side, he could have phased him or tased him or whatever he got. At, at what point did he actually draw the weapon? Was it before he got out of the car or after he got out? Um, it is best described as all of one movement. He does it as he's getting out. He is literally unbuckling the seatbelt, opening the door, grabbing his gun. So he made the decision before he even got out of the car. I was saying he was charging the car, not the officer. Right, right. so he's charging the car. Like, if I was in a car and somebody so was running toward me, I'd just lock my doors. Yeah, I, right. I wouldn't even get out. <laughs> so he is 
the right of every person you said is you know self defense, um, but with the training officers get and you know they they are here to serve and they're part of you know why we pay taxes and all that. I I guess and you know maybe I'm just wrong. I would think that it would be you know um, natural to hold you know a, a police officer to a higher standard when it comes to something like this. Is that not the case? It is not. After that, the group was split into two mock juries, each with 12 people. They were sent into separate rooms. It was pretty cool watching them deliberate through one-way mirrors. The attorneys were also watching, not to mention Olson. He was extremely engaged throughout the whole exercise. When the jurors made certain points, he'd run over to a member of his defense team and argue his case. Most of the jurors seemed to think Olson was guilty of something, but there was no consensus about what that was. One thing's for sure, this case stirs passionate debate. Here's an exchange in one of the rooms. Was he in fear enough of what this new man with no weapon was going to do to him? Was he in fear enough to take his life? Was he in fear enough that he was going to jump on him, push him down, or was he able, felt like this man was going to kill him? Was it enough for him to take his life at that moment without knowing that? For sure. That's the, that's, that's the question. What kind of new, if he had a, a new gun, man if he was coming at him with a gun, he absolutely was justified. If he had person. a knife, absolutely. He knew he could harm him enough mm-hmm. to kill him, to give him severe bodily harm. Here's another exchange. And here, here's the thing. In that situation, that split second, he has to make the, the quick what, decisions so exactly of what, what he I'm thinks saying. is the most useful that's thing. That's exactly he what made. I'm saying. That's where he goes right. wrong. He that, that, that's exactly right. He might not have made the, you know, if you run the situation a hundred so times, you, maybe there's you, okay. better ways to do it. But he made the situation you, or the decision so do you he agree, had to make. Do you agree that pulling the gun, uh, just, just that decision was wrong? Or was that I don't necessarily disagree with that, no. Okay, so you say that that was the right decision? I'm not saying it was the right or wrong decision. I'm but saying it's not an illegal decision. Okay, so I just want to know your opinion. You got to because you got to remember the prosecution has to prove that he did not act okay, in I'm self not, defense. Okay, I'm not going there. I'm just asking, what do you think? It's, it's a very basic question. What do you think? Was it the right decision? Or what? It, well, I don't think, I don't think there was anything I'm wrong sorry, with this In the other room, the discussions also became quite animated. Here's one juror explaining why he thought it was self-defense. Bear with us. The audio system in this room isn't as good as the other one. They said if you have any doubt at all, that's one reason why I said not, not guilty. And the fact that he backed up, yep. he said no, stop, stop. So you, don't feel like he he violated his oath? you still think he's not guilty for everything? Yeah. So why don't you think he violated his oath? What about the excessive force? Well, he didn't. I mean, it's split second, you get the gun out. I mean, right. no, he, but why, would, why did he get the gun out? So what about the oath, I mean, though? Was, gonna, was he like, shooting something? Yeah. A little while later, another juror appears to give Olson some latitude. He showed up. The officer showed up. He didn't know. He didn't have all the information we have. Right. He shows up, and this naked man starts running at him. And you know, he firstly he's he's got a B twenty two or whatever that is. He meant to. And then this naked man starts running at him. Most anybody, I would think, would say, is this a threatening situation or a not threatening situation? Now, we're not talking about how threatening, but it is, you know, first, you know, is it one or two? Is it threatening or not threatening? But didn't they say and you they would say, I think you would say that's threatening. So then, you know, how do, how do you control the situation? And 
I think that's what the, the, the debate is, is do you control the situation with uh, with a gun? I don't buy or, I mean, you got that's, that's what he's, someone, someone asked a great question. There was a guy in the other group, he said, what was his mission when he showed up? He didn't know what his mission was because what direction does this turn? I mean, is this guy just naked and walking around and going to have a nice conversation? Maybe he's looking for food and lost a bet and lost his money? Or is there something else? And he's, the officer's got to figure that out. Well, if you, but at some point, he felt like this isn't going right. I told him to stop at gunpoint, and he's still coming, and then that's their, their self-defense. The jurors are giving the lawyers a lot to work with. One seems to have an opinion that stops short of murder, but still holds Olson accountable. And I'm also confused about like the self-defense. Like I, I would want to know what the cop was thinking. That how was he worried about his life or other people's life? Like if I. I don't know, I've never been in a situation, and I hope not to be, but if a naked right. person is, is running at me, I'm not sure I would fear for my life. I'd be like, I don't understand what is going on, and let me get behind something. Yeah, let me but get away from get the away person. From yeah. But I, I don't know if, like, if I don't see around anybody on the ground or hurt or anything, and I just see a naked person running, it's a different situation than pulling out a gun and shooting. Him. So I'm not sure Are it was self-defense, but I think he, yeah. I just think he did, he did aggravated assault, and he, he should have used lesser force. A juror then made this observation. I have a question. So you're saying, you said you found him not guilty on everything. So are you saying that you think in a regular situation, everyone should have a gun, and any time you feel like they feel threatened, they should just shoot? So it would be a lot of dead people, honestly. It would be a lot of dead people. Denise Delarue finally re-enters the room to find out what the group has decided. How are you all doing? That's We're done. done. We're okay. done. We yes. are done. What? Tell me what the news is. Oh, so go ahead and read it. Okay. okay. There you go. So number one, on the charge of felony murder, death occurring in the commission of aggravated assault, we, the jury, find <laughs> the defendant not guilty. Okay. Number two, on the charge of felony murder, death occurring as a result of violation of oath by a public officer, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty. You can almost imagine it playing out in court this way. Delarue then asks this question. What would you guys guess with the verdict, if the jury were to return the verdict that you returned, guilty of felony murder, with the underlying felony being violation of oath of the public officer, official, what would you your guess be as to what his sentence will be? Five years probation. Okay. No years probation. Okay. Suspension. Okay, anybody else? You're not suspension. Sure. Well, sure. Should I go with five years probation? What if I told you if you say 10 to 15? Okay. Anybody else? then lets them know that with their verdict, the judge would have to sentence Olson to a mandatory sentence of life in prison. Under Georgia law, it also means he wouldn't be eligible for parole until he served a minimum of 30 years behind bars. Olson is 57 years old. Delarue then lets everyone go. Happy holiday greetings are exchanged. They pick up a check, payment for the day's work, and head out. As one juror leaves, he says what has probably crossed everyone's mind. Just thank God I'm not on the jury. Yeah, I know it, man. This is Breakdown. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. 
A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The feedback from the mock jury left the defense feeling deflated. And it could have been worse. Remember, the mock jurors had not been told about Officer Anderson's testimony. More recently, however, the defense convened two more mock juries. This time, they didn't ask me to come. But Olson's lawyer, Don Samuel, told me that things went better for his client. In fact, he said, one jury completely acquitted Olson of the murder charges. We'd like to tell you about the prosecution's preparations, but they're not talking before trial. In open court and in press releases, they've said they're eager to get the case in front of a jury. But before that happens, a jury must be selected, and that could very well be where the case is decided. The defense will want jurors who are pro-law enforcement. The prosecution will be trying to keep those folks off the jury. Here's where race is likely to matter most. A little more than half of DeKalb's residents are black. One-third are white. Keith Adams, a criminal defense lawyer who has tried cases in DeKalb for years, talks about that racial dynamic. It's always on people's minds. In, in, this, in, in every case it is. It, it, I, you know, I don't think I'm being overly cynical in saying that um, it is an overriding, um, overarching um, issue in a lot of different cases. Uh, absolutely, M- much more so in this one. You've got a white police officer, you've got a um, a black victim, um, and in the climate that we have going on right now in the country, um, in regards to law enforcement officers and you know you know the deaths, shootings of you know black citizens, um, that's going to be an issue. That's going to be an issue for Olson. But in this case, some traditional allegiances might not be as clear-cut, Adams said. The defense is going to want folks who would sympathize with Olson. Um, no one's going to say this. They're going to want some white folks on that jury, right? Um, they're going to want some people who tend to be more law enforcement-oriented um, on that jury. Now, that's a little tricky because the same folks who are law enforcement-oriented are going to be folks who are uh, like military folks. And the deceased in this case... It was a military veteran, right? So that's going to be a little bit tricky. That makes a lot of sense. And you'll remember during the mock jury exercise, there were a few African-Americans who were clearly sympathetic to Olson's defense. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out when a real jury is selected. I've sat through a lot of trials, but I don't often have the luxury of watching jury selection. The times I have, it's been fascinating. You never know what people are going to say. I watched jury selection in a death penalty trial earlier this year. One guy, a former U.S. Navy nuclear engineer, said he'd found out a DNA test confirmed he had a daughter he didn't know about. Not only was she 11 years old at the time, he said he worked very hard for years to pay off all the child support he owed. It was my duty, he said. Hey, Bill, talk about that corruption trial you covered a few years ago. Yeah, an African-American man was the defendant. During jury selection, his defense lawyer got five or six prospective jurors to admit in open court, that they still used the N-word. I couldn't believe it. For trial attorneys, it's not so much picking the jurors you want. It's making sure you identify and then eliminate the people you don't want. If the lawyers know what they're doing, neither side is going to be totally satisfied. Here's Bob Rubin again. And um, in this case, I'm sure in DeKalb County, you'll get a real mix of, of all types of by race, by gender, by um, profession, by level of education. 
Former DA Robert James knows firsthand what it's like to present a case to jurors in DeKalb County and how race almost always comes into play. Any trial lawyer that's tried a case in a county like DeKalb or Clayton or even Atlanta, when you voir dire those jurors and you ask them who in here has had a bad experience with law enforcement officers, about 90% of your jury, their hands go up. James says there's one telling question lawyers often ask prospective jurors. Would you take the word of a police officer over an ordinary citizen? You get that question a lot. First trial in the cab, no lie. Um, there was a lawyer that asked that same question in my first jury trial in the cab, and the entire jury pool laughed. They laughed at the notion that they would take the word of a police officer over that of an ordinary citizen. A lot of your jurors in the cab have had um, experiences, um, life experiences, that force them to see law enforcement and government a different way. Conversely, you're going to have a handful of people that um, are very conservative um, and, you know, that would always, always give more credence or credibility to a law enforcement officer's version of events, you know, and have a bias leaning in that direction. Striking a jury is part skill, but it's part like you're going to Vegas. It just depends on what group you get because you only have a certain number of strikes and you can only get rid of so many. And if you have an unusually high amount of those folks who would never convict a police officer in the pool, then, you know, it doesn't matter how well the prosecution tries the case. What I've learned in my experience in these high profile cases, if you get one of those people on the jury, you can use every trial tactic that you've ever been taught in law school and learn from the best lawyers in the world. That person will not budge. And, and that's just the reality of it. That's the social dynamic of it. Here's defense attorney Bob Rubin again. In this case where you're defending a police officer um, and it's a um, white on black shooting, right, um, this may not be the best county uh, for that kind of case. You may find a pretty hostile environment in the courtroom for jury selection. And you may, you know, you may hope it goes so badly that you end up getting a change of venue to a different county. Oh, God, not that again. Please. No. Inconvenient though it may be for us, it would be wrenching for both families. It's been four and a half years. They've waited long enough. For Chip and Kathy Olson, they're still trying to figure out how and when to tell their young son what's going on. So when the situation, when, the, when it was expected that the trial was going to start to take place in February, we sat down with his um, principal and the counselor at school and talked to them about what we should do. Because we're like, I, I don't know. What do you say to a nine-year-old kid, right? So we need to prepare him, but we don't want to scare him. We'll find a way. We have to. And hopefully he will um, adjust. And at some point when he's older, you know, we'll, we'll tell him more. But right now the details are, we're not really telling him a whole lot detail-wise because he's a pretty sensitive kid. And, you know, and he loves his dad. Anthony Hill's mom wants justice for her son, but she empathizes with Olson's family. I feel sorry for his wife and his child. Yeah. They have to go through this because as a mother, they didn't do that. So I have compassion for them, you know, because they're going to lose somebody or afraid to lose somebody. I've already lost somebody, you know, so and that's a child who might not have their dad, you know. Hill's loved ones know that getting jurors to return a guilty verdict won't be easy. I'm just praying that they would see the truth and would try to get as close as if that was your child, 
that was killed, what type of justice you would want. And nobody's going to tell me they would want the person to get off. And I also tell myself that I want him to be found guilty because that's what he did. I'm not so much interested in how much time he get because that's irrelevant to me. Just to found guilty. And I think from that we can move on to set up different programs to help officers deal with this and and also to send a message out to those that are doing wrong. Now you're going to be held accountable for it. For Kathy Olson, the stakes couldn't be higher. I hope that people realize the severity and the seriousness of the situation, that his life is in their hands. And I don't know how else to say it. His life, um, our family, and police officers in general. So the stage is set. It should be one interesting trial. Next, on Breakdown. A jury is seated and the prosecution and defense get to make their case. Unarmed, unclothed, and unable to harm. That's what the evidence will show Anthony Hill was on March 9, 2015. When you have heard all the evidence in this case, you will conclude that Chip Olson is not guilty of murder. I'm Bill Rankin. I'm Christian Boone. Thanks for joining us again on Breakdown. You've been listening to Breakdown, reported and narrated by Bill Rankin and Christian Boone. Produced by Shannon McCaffrey. Edited by Richard Hallex. Sound designed by Shane Backler at WSB Radio. Original music composed and recorded by Bo Emerson and Anthony Hill. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Monica Richardson, Sean McIntosh, Brad Schrade, Pete Corson, Pete Spriggs, Chris Camp, Veronica Waters, and all the great people at the AJC. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous six seasons of Breakdown. And of course, thanks so very much for listening. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.